The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. We have a fantastic episode today with our chief of nephrology, Dr. Joel Toff, everybody's favorite. You probably know him as at Kidney Boy on Twitter. He's here today talking about metabolic alkalosis, which we will learn is the most common finding on a blood gas in the hospital, as, as he will tell us about. And I should probably tell you that I am Dr. Matthew Frank Watto here with my friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, who I think is a bit upset with me because uh, it's been a long recording and, uh, you know, there's no, been some bad I, jokes made. I feel, yeah, I feel like I've been demoted. Some days I'm great friend, some days I'm good friend, today just friend, so I, I'm slowly <laughs> sliding down. Eventually I'll be colleague and then eventually you'll be nemesis, but that's that's probably a couple years down the line. Well, you know, Paul, it's it's 10 o'clock at night. No, almost 10:30 at night, and we're both, you know, it's a it's a weeknight. Uh, we are we are up late. Tell the audience what is it that we do on this show? Why are we up so late talking to each other uh, from our respective homes? Yeah, no, I think in part we're we're doing this because I'm just tired of saying, oh, probably contraction alkalosis, breaking eye contact, and walking away quickly while whistling. <laughs> now I feel like I'm better equipped to have a conversation about that. But I think what you're asking is. What exactly we do, and we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, as you mentioned, we, we talked to the amazing kidney boy, Joel Top. We also have another co-host with us and producer extraordinaire, a doc, well, not not yet, uh, but <laughs> Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Beth, how are you? Good. How are you guys doing? Beth, thank you for joining us. And the, you know, soon to be Dr. Beth Garbs Garbatelli and uh, scary in the pre- proposition sometimes. <laughs> Don't worry. You're you. You must be ready. I mean, I, I take it as an insult that you've been with us for four years of curbsiders and feel like you're not ready to be a doctor. No, Paul, I'm are you insulted? I, I'm not insulted anyway. I think you should always be lately terrified to practice medicine. So I think just keep keep that attitude. OK, well, we're going to go through four cases, common situations where you might see metabolic alkalosis. And Joel is going to tell you all about that. And let me tell you a little bit more about our wonderful guest, Dr. Joel Toff. He went to medical school at Wayne State University, did a med-peds at Indiana University. That's right, another med-peds person. He completed an adult fellowship in nephrology at the University of Chicago. He's currently clinical nephrologist in Detroit at Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And of course, he's our chief of nephrology at Cashlack. Joel's passion is using social media and new media to teach nephrology. He started his blog, Precious Body Fluids in 2008, he developed Neff Madness and Neff JC to leverage the power of community, digital scholarship, and creativity to teach nephrology. He's the founder and program director of the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship, which trains medical professionals to use social media for medical education. Joel is a pioneer in bringing visual abstracts to nephrology and is a visual abstract editor for CJASN and the American Journal of Nephrology. He is a creator and host of the Nephrology podcast, Freely Filtered, as well as the new Channel Your Enthusiasm, Burden Rose Book Club, which I'm a little upset, Paul, that he didn't tell us about that, but <laughs> we've got to get on to the show. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Dr. Joel Toff. A reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Our guest on this episode, Dr. Toff, has commercial interests with Bayer, Caratherapeutics, AstraZeneca, and Traceda. He's been on the advisory board for all except AstraZeneca. Our discussion on this episode was fair and balanced. Trade names were not used, and we discussed a balanced range of therapeutic options. Joel, this is probably appearance number 25 on the Curbsiders. Thank you for coming back. Can you please give the audience a one-liner, remind them a little bit about yourself? I am a 51-year-old 
kidney doctor who exists at the intersection of clinical care and medical education. And I continually try to use new technology platforms to improve and expand medical education. Follow-up question. What are you doing on TikTok these days? And is (laughs) that a new, should we be on there? I have a face for podcasting. (laughs) 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 And my dance skills, trust me, podcasting is good for me. Yeah, we're we're exploring TikTok. We, I, I you know, I, I feel like we, the, it's got to be students that that help us out with that because Paul and I do not understand it. Oh, speak for yourself, but I, I also think we <laughs> we very cleverly um, made sure that we were not going to be the face of it at least early on. So, like, at least people don't have to contend with that. But it, it's going to be spectacular. I'm very excited for it. A lot of Doja Cat. It's going to be good. We will be hosting <laughs> choreographed dances by our hosts. I, I promise you guys that. <laughs> Yeah, the look I only of fear dance. on Matt's face as I said that. <laughs> <laughs> so my daughter started doing this thing where she counts to a hundred, and that's the only time I dance. I I do one dance move for each each number, and uh, that's that's a a bit that I will only do for her, so everyone <laughs> else can imagine what that would look like. Joel, any pick of the week? Well, let's let's do some picks of the week since uh, the audience has already heard tons of wisdom from you, and I'm sure you're going to tell them tons of wisdom about the the topic at hand. But pick of the week. So I am uh, listening to an audiobook now. It's called Letter to a Female Physician. This is by Suzanne Coven. Has this been a recommendation yet? No, not yet. Back in 2017, she wrote an essay to the New England Journal of Medicine. That was the title, Letter to a Young Female Physician. And she kind of tells the story of that in the introduction to this book. And apparently she w- it was a intern orientation session. And they had all the interns write a letter to themselves that they would open like six months later. And she was so intrigued with the assignment that she kind of reversed it. And she wrote a a letter to herself at the start of her internship. And it was a very popular essay. It read in the New England Journal. And then she adopted the title for a memoir. And she is an incredibly insightful general internist who is, you know, towards the back half of her career, has a lot of insight, talks about medical school in the 80s. Uh, she lost a, a co-resident to HIV, you know, just in a needle stick accident, you know, just kind of the, right, the kind of devastating experience. Um, so far, the whole book has been pre-COVID, but it is a really interesting, she has really interesting relationships with her parents and her children, uh, a lot of lessons. She's very insightful. I would highly recommend it. The only thing I would say, I think the letter, the title, Letter to a Young Female Physician, I think I, I think the book is good for men and women. I think it's so you're more saying just don't good let to that physicians. Scare you off. That's what I'm saying. I think I, okay. I, I think you know. I was a little nervous because just I didn't. I, I wondered how much it would speak to me, and it does plenty. Like I, I, so many of her experience sure. with patients um, are really gender free or gender neutral. It's a it's a good read, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. That sounds great. I think so much of what we read about medicine is negative and she there's a lot of joy in the book and I and I love people that have joy in their in their uh their professional careers. It'd be nice to read about somebody on the you said she's on the back back part of her career. It'd be mm-hmm. nice to hear about somebody on the back end of the career that's not like bitter and <laughs> Right. No, that's exactly yeah, exactly right. Well, Paul it's time. I think you haven't given a pick of the week for a little while. So what? What can we? What death metal band should the audience check out? <laughs> no, you know, I was thinking about this. I'm actually going to pick one just to prove I'm not an absolute contrarian. So I, I will never see Hamilton. I'm sorry. I will never, <laughs> never watch Ted Lasso. Um, it's just, just not going to be part of my life. But I will say I, I like the Squid Game a whole bunch. So I like. It's not like I'm telling people something that they don't know about already. So if you haven't watched already, you're probably not going to. But just in case there's that two people listening that were thinking about it, but then didn't, it is, um, for those not familiar, it is a uh, South Korean series that showed up on Netflix in September. And it's basically these people who are uh, economically disadvantaged decide to join part in this game where if they win it, they win a ton of money. If they lose, uh, losing actually means dying. And it's sort of these series of children's game like uh, Red Light, Green Light. And if they move, then they get picked off. That's sort of the, the sequence that everyone is probably familiar with already. But it is, in addition to being gorgeous and really well acted and has an amazing score, it's actually this sort of searing indictment of consumerism and a sort of examination of class. So like it's, it's you know, I, I remember, do you guys remember when Bird Box came out on Netflix and it was like the most watched thing in all of history? 
Yeah. yeah. I I didn't, I had no interest in it, but I do and, remember yeah. seeing the endless trailers. Right. No. And it was a steaming pile of garbage. So like, you know, just because a lot of people <laughs> liked something on Netflix didn't mean that I was going to enjoy it. So this was, this was refreshing to see something that was very popular, but also happened to be very good. So if you're one of the stragglers, I'm going to go ahead and recommend Squid Game just to see if I can't push one or more or two people into watching it. That sounds fantastic, Paul. Thank you for yet another wonderful recommendation. Yeah. I don't, I didn't get that when it, my, my, it's now at the point where my, my nine-year-old, no, he's 10 now. My 10-year-old today was talking about Squid Game and how people die in it. I'm like, how do you know about this? He's like, kids are talking about it on the bus. I'm like, oh, great. Fourth graders on the bus are talking about this, what sounds like a rated R movie. Yeah, uh, it's, the, it's the zeitgeist. Catch up now or be left behind. Your, yeah. your kids are showing you up. It just anyway. sounds so dark, Paul. I just feel like it I does. can't tune into that after a long day. I don't know if it would uh, bring me bring me joy. <laughs> so I... I <laughs> It's, it's, it's totally, there, there are bits of humor. There is a really solid core of humanity into it. Like it's, it is, it's, it has, it has a lot, it has a lot to offer for, but I can also respect that if after the day to day, it may not be the, the most inspiring thing in the world. So yep, I get it. Are you watching the native Korean? Uh, I, I am indulgently reading subtitles. Yes. Beth, did you have a pick of the week? I do. I have two, which I know I'm guilty of doing sometimes, but I'll be quick, I promise. And the first one is inspired by, um, you know, to give a quick preview, we may talk about a little bit of a baseball story twist to one of our cases. Um, and a book I really loved was What Do You Think of Ted Williams Now by uh, Richard Ben Kramer. I read it a few years ago as an avid Yankees fan. I have to say it really won me over on Ted Williams. Very interesting guy and a, a really great kind of short, quick read about a baseball legend. And I don't know if I'm going to make some Yankee fan enemies, but I think he was a better hitter than Joe DiMaggio. So I don't know. It convinced me. And kind of bridging off of that, the author, Richard Ben Kramer, is fantastic. I believe he actually was a reporter. And another book that he wrote that I absolutely love and recommend to everyone is What It Takes, The Way to the White House. And this doesn't sound riveting, but it is riveting. He did kind of a blow by blow of the 1988 presidential election, kind of going through the primaries. And you get a really interesting perspective on some of the folks who ran for office that year. It's a book that could never be written today because, you know, he had this time to write this really luxurious account of everything and really got to know a bunch of different folks in a really intimate way. Um, but it's it's a great piece of both reporting, uh, political journalism, and uh, history. So highly That's recommend Dukakis it. That's Dukakis versus Bush? Yes. And isn't Joe Biden running early in that election also? Yes. He, so oh, you, you, you meet a young Joe Biden. Um, and, and and you know what? I think what sinks is he copied somebody else's speech, right? Yeah, there is there is a lot, and he all it's it's really interesting. I mean, I I didn't know that he had a major health scare after the election. I think he already had left. I read this book a few years ago, but I believe he had already left the primary, and then he had an aneurysm. But you learn a little bit about his like personal history. I mean, it just it's fascinating to hear like a little bit more about some of the folks from that era, and also it's I reflected a lot on how some of the precedents of campaigns today were sort of impacted by that 1988 election and how that, that sort of started the ball on cer certain trends that we've seen kind of unfortunately continue. But anyway, highly recommend it. It's about a thousand pages long, so you have to budget your time appropriately. That was the first election, I, a presidential election I voted in. Nice. <laughs> When when you said way to the White House, uh, I thought you were going to talk about like parlaying a reality TV show into a White House run. So I'm glad it was something that took place in the 80s instead of a, a book about Trump. Um, Matt, so Matt, it, it, the, it, this may be your step to the White House. It starts with podcasting, <laughs> and the next thing you know, I think I think we all know Joe Rogan's going to be the first podcaster that's oh president of the United oh States. <laughs> Uh, all right, we're getting way off the rails. That's Beth dark. That's dark, yeah. Hey, Curbsiders. You remember our sponsor today. It's Grammarly. Yeah, Paul and I have talked about Grammarly. Sometimes we don't communicate so well. Yeah, you'd think as professional podcast hosts, maybe we'd have some good communication skills, but let's turns out, all righty, could use some work. Paul has talked about this. He needs help with brevity. He needs help especially with tone because... He pretty much speaks in sarcasm, and uh, that doesn't always go over so well when you're trying to write formal emails. So what we love about Grammarly is that it helps sharpen our overall communication skills. They might make suggestions about clarity. They can help you with tone rewrites. 
and they can help you set a formality level. I also love how Grammarly has a feature where you can double click and it'll suggest a synonym to, you know, sometimes I want a word that's gonna make me sound smarter. And as I mentioned, they let you set your audience and your desired tone before you start so that way as you go along, it's gonna make suggestions to you. And that's done by its built-in tone detector because if you want the email to sound friendly, let's make sure it sounds friendly. You won't want your friendly email to sound hostile to the person receiving it, which I think Paul has mentioned that maybe he's had some issues with that. So Grammarly is just gonna make us better writers all around. And for us who publish weekly show notes, send a lot of emails, we really want our stuff to look good, read well, and, and just not have a lot of errors in it. And Grammarly is helping us with that. So why don't you join us and take the stress out of getting the words right with Grammarly. Our listeners get 20% off Grammarly Premium at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's 20% off at Grammarly.com slash curb. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Beth, how about you how about you bring us to a case from Cashlack? Uh speaking of legends, Beth, please yes. t- tell us about our first case. Yes. So we are uh, taking it back to baseball. We're we're starting with a patient who's now in the Cashlack ED, baseball legend, uh, right fielder Al Kaline. He went on a bender after getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, and now he's here in the ER and he's complaining of vomiting. He's unable to keep anything down. In addition to his GI complaint, he's feeling generally weak and he's getting kind of dizzy when he's trying to sit up or stand up. His blood pressure is 112 over 67, heart rate 98. And when you sit him up, his blood pressure is falling to 88 over 52 with a heart rate of 124. Initial labs come back and they're showing you a sodium of 132, potassium of 2.8, chloride of 74, bicarb 46, BUN 40, creatinine 1.8, and a glucose of 50. So, kidney boy, take us through. Where do we start with uh, with this baseball legend, Al Kaline? Yeah. So this guy's got electrolyte abnormalities kind of diffusely right through the Chem 7. He's got a mild hyponatremia at 132. He's got pretty profound hypokalemia. That It's hard to take your eyes off that potassium at 2.8. Uh, we usually ignore the chloride, but this one is a significantly low chloride at 74 and the reason it's low is to give room for all the other anions, which is the bicarb, which is piled up to 46 and has some degree of uh, kidney insufficiency with a BUN of 40 and a creatinine of 1.8. And then the glucose of 50 is something consistent with uh, the alcohol bender, that hypoglycemia that we see with uh, patients when they're drunk. And so, you know, this guy's got, uh, he's got metabolic alkalosis. And clearly, he's, you know, he's uh, profoundly orthostatic on his vital signs, and so you want to volume resuscitate him. And so much of our teaching is to reach for balanced fluids, and don't do that here, right? Because <laughs> he's got metabolic alkalosis, and the metabolic acidosis that we normally see with normal saline would be welcome here. This guy is starving for chloride and sodium, and so normal saline is really the, is the fluid of choice in this situation. And, you know, do we know that he's got metabolic alkalosis truly to make the diagnosis? We do need an ABG, but the clinical scenario is so classic. I'm not sure if I would bother the legend LK line with a, uh, with an arterial blood stick or even a, a venous blood stick. I think, uh, I think the diagnosis is clear from the history of vomiting that he's got metabolic alkalosis. It, yeah, it would seem like this guy would probably be getting fluids before they had time to get an ABG and probably on the way to correcting correcting some of this stuff. Hopefully yeah. they'd hooked him up by the, you know, just based on the story, they hooked him up. Is there any danger in this? I mean, these electrolytes, like any any pitfalls here, someone with the, these electrolytes are all pretty uniformly jacked up. He's hypotensive, tachycardic. The rate at which we try to fix any of this, does that matter in this case? No, I, I don't think you're going to have those kind of problems. I mean, the, the, the danger right here, I believe that potassium at 2.8 is probably the most dangerous electrolyte. You're going to want to correct that um, and you're going to want to correct that quickly. I want to just take a moment to talk about kind of the pathophysiology of metabolic alkalosis because that's one of the real profound abnormalities here. I think it's kind of the Rodney danger field of electrolyte disorders. We don't really give it much respect. We don't think about it too much. Um, let's just take a moment to talk about uh, metabolic alkalosis. So the kidney, the proximal tubule does a ton of work and literally reabsorbs thousands of milliequivalents of bicarb a day. And so 
when you develop metabolic alkalosis, to correct that metabolic alkalosis, all the kidney needs to do is not do so much work. It doesn't it just tell the proximal tubule, hey, relax, take a little time <laughs> off, don't reabsorb so much bicarbonate, and that bicarbonate will just pour out of the kidney and you'll correct that metabolic alkalosis. And so you can have you can feed patients tons of sodium bicarbonate. And if they don't have some other defect that forces the kidney to reabsorb that bicarb, they'll just <laughs> spill that bicarb without any problem. And they correct that and people can eat an incredible amount of alkali without any problems. And so we kind of divide metabolic alkalosis into two phases. There's the generation, which is going to be the addition of alkali or the loss of hydrogen ions. And that's going to generate the alkalosis. But almost more important is the maintenance. What paralyzes the kidney and forces it to reabsorb bicarb against its will. And, uh, and there's just, there's a limited number of things that do that. So, you know, one of them could be kidney failure, right? If you are, if your GFR falls close to zero, well, you're not going to be able to excrete anything, including alkalosis. And we see that in our dialysis patients, not infrequently, even modest bicarb loads can cause pretty profound metabolic alkalosis because they just don't have any mechanism to clear that. So that's one. And then, uh, the other one is going to be volume deficiency, and we kind of call volume deficiency and chloride deficiency, kind of put them in the same bucket. They're usually one in the same. They usually walk together. It does look like it's the chloride deficiency that really drives that. But you know, it's, you know, when you look at a patient, you're like, are they chloride deficient? What you actually are looking at and what you pick up is the volume deficiency. So clinically, you're looking for volume deficiency. Biochemically, it is uh, chloride deficiency. And there's really been really interesting studies to try to kind of separate those out. They would intentionally get uh, dogs or volunteers, get them develop, have them develop metabolic alkalosis. And they, you, if they, part of that concoction to develop the metabolic alkalosis would include a lot of diuretics. And then they would restore their volume with like albumin, like chloride poor albumin. And their volume would be fine and they would be no longer orthostatic. They wouldn't be tachycardic and they would still have metabolic alkalosis. And you could flip that over and you could load them with potassium chloride, keep them on the diuretic so they're still in negative sodium balance, they're still hypostensive, they're still volume depleted. But if you gave them enough potassium chloride, they'd respond and fix their metabolic alkalosis. And so with those types of experiments, we're like, yeah, it's really the chloride deficiency. <laughs> but like I said, in terms of what you're looking at and what you're diagnosing, it's volume deficiency will be the second thing that maintains your metabolic alkalosis. After kidney failure and after volume slash chloride deficiency, there are two more factors that force the kidney to reabsorb bicarb. One of them is hypokalemia, right? And you can just remember that it's hypokalemia, but the mechanism is actually pretty cool. Remember in medical school, you learned that when you have hypokalemia, you get this exchange of potassium for hydrogen ions. So potassiums come out, come out of the cell and hydrogen goes into the cell. And that's how you part of the compensation for hypokalemia. Well, the hydrogen ions going into the cell makes that cell have intracellular acidosis. And in the kidney, when they detect that intracellular acidosis, they're like, oh my gosh, we need to hold on to bicarb, right? It's responding to a perception of metabolic acidosis that doesn't really exist. And in fact, it is being fooled into thinking there's metabolic acidosis by the hypokalemia. Pretty cool stuff. And then the last one, the last mechanism is something that is, is forcing high aldosterone activity. And the most common cause of high aldosterone activity is just high aldosterone levels, right? And this is found with volume deficiency, which we've already covered. And then you have the primary hyperaldo, Cushing syndrome, those types of pictures will also cause increased aldosterone levels. And that will also serve to maintain metabolic alkalosis. And Joel, can you, and for me, who I'm, I'm always mystified by, by renal physiology in general, could you talk me where, where is the potassium going in this patient? So like, you know, I feel like a lot of this stuff's intuitive, their volume and deplete, they're sort of barfing up their chloride. And then meanwhile, it's, we're, we're really concerned about the hypokalemia. Can you talk me through where, where that's going and what's happening there? Yeah. So the, and it's, it is kind of a mystery because if you were to like, if you were to look at, you know, we teach the interns, you know, for every 10th of a point that the potassium is down, they're down about 10 millivolts of potassium. And so you just do the subtraction here and you're going to be down about 120 millivolts. 
And actually, if you look at those formulas, they say once you get below three, you got to actually – it's more than uh, 10 milliequivalents. And so right. literally, this guy's probably about a 200 milliequivalents potassium deficient. And if you look at the potassium concentration in vomit, it's about 10 milliequivalents per liter. Right. And nobody vomits up 20 liters. Like you didn't have 20 <laughs> liters of vomit. Like, and that's what it would take for the yeah. vomit, for just the loss of potassium through the vomit. That's not where it comes from. Right. And what happens is as you develop the metabolic alkalosis from losing all that hydrogen ions and all those chloride ions in the vomit, that develops a profound metabolic alkalosis. And your kidney starts to excrete that bicarb in the urine. And that bicarb, that negative charge when it gets to the distal uh, nephron, it's like a magnet and it holds on to that potassium. And so as you're losing bicarbonate in the urine, you're also losing obligate potassium losses along with it. I kind of, they're handcuffed together, the potassium and the bicarb. And so it's the urinary potassium losses. And it's kind of weird when you kind of like make a chart and you're like, you have this chart of potassium uh, renal losses and not extra renal losses. And to have hypokalemia due to vomiting under renal losses, you're like, that seems like it should be GI losses. It's not. It's under renal losses. And the, and the, and the proof here is that patients that are on end-stage renal disease that have anuria that have profound vomiting, they don't get hypokalemia. That, that makes a lot of sense. Joel, I, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question. So you said, or, or this is more of a comment actually before my question. So my <laughs> patients that eat just like a ton of baking soda for their heartburn, that's why they're okay because you said the kidney can just excrete a ton of bicarb as long as it's functioning. So unless they have end-stage renal disease or advanced CKD, my patients that are telling me that they love the bicarb for whatever home remedy they're taking it for, uh, usually heartburn, that that's okay? It's okay. It can they can get into trouble, right? I mean, if they mm -hmm. if you know if they get a little volume depleted and they fall behind, or if they get a little hypercalcemic, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, they can yeah. get into trouble. But you know, if they walk the narrow path, they should be able to get by with pretty pretty impressive bicarbonate loads. So my my other question, and, 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 the, and the only thing I want to I want to caution is sodium bicarbonate or baking soda that we have in the house. It is really industrial strength sodium bicarbonate, and you know a teaspoon, a tiny teaspoon of that has sixty milliequivalents of bicarbonate, and so a full six hundred and fifty milligram pill, which is the big honk in sodium bicarbonate pill, has eight milliequivalents. Right. Yeah. So a teaspoon Whoa. of this stuff <laughs> is is nearly ten of these pills. It's it's eight of these pills. It's eight pills. This okay. makes my uh, my baking experiments feel a lot more profound. <laughs> it, it's just yeah. You just need to be. You just need to respect it. And you just you can imagine patients taking a tablespoon, which is three teaspoons, and you're like, you know, it kind of boggles the mind. You can get to pretty profoundly high bicarb loads pretty quickly playing with um, baking soda. I wanted to bring it back to Rodney Dangerfield before we move on. Why do we need to respect the metabolic alkalosis? What are the clinical consequences of this that we might recognize? Yeah. So it, it, part of the fact that it's not respected is kind of deserved, right? There's, <laughs> it's, it doesn't have really profound effects. Like there are reports of severe metabolic alkalosis, very high pHs resulting in seizures and delirium. I'm not sure if I've ever seen that, but it's you know it's it's written in the literature, and you they talk about it causing uh, vasoconstrict cerebral vasoconstriction, so decrease in circulation. You can kind of imagine that may be what's triggering the seizures or the uh, the confusion. There's supposed to be VQ mismatching in the lungs, but largely what you're looking at is a lot of other associated electrolyte disorders that are going to be the problem, right? So the hypokalemia that goes along with this, oftentimes they'll get hypocalcemia. Right, because as you pull hydrogen off of the albumins from the metabolic alkalosis, calcium replaces it. And so you'll drop your ionized calcium in response to the alkalemia. But interesting, like when you do, there's a, a number of large studies that have just said, let's look at, you know, 130,000 ABGs and let's see what the ABGs <laughs> show when you look at, and, and then really, they literally look at all the ABGs done at a hospital in a year. The most common electrolyte disorder or acid based disorder is metabolic alkalosis. And it's like not even close. It's like 50% of all the ABGs of metabolic alkalosis. And then they then looked at, well, do, how do those patients do? And like series after series, about 30% of those patients died in the hospital. Like it was like incredibly dangerous to have metabolic alkalosis and have it picked up by an ABG. I suppose if you have metabolic alkalosis and you're not picked up in the ABG, they're not part of the study. Who knows what happened to those patients? I feel like and it's correlation, not causation. I am it's just a sicker yes. group. 
A hundred percent. I really don't yeah. think that it's the metabolic alkalosis causing the problem. That said, when you get a patient, you have metabolic alkalosis, take a moment to say, hey, this patient, there's, there, this patient deserves my attention. There, this, may be, this patient may be sicker than I've appreciated. I have a theory. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Bring Paul. it. No, bear with me. I, I feel like you almost always get the ABG just to confirm the acidosis that you know is there. So if you're checking an ABG and the patient has a metabolic alkalosis, you're like, oh, no, I was way wrong. So I feel like if you're, if you're already – if you cross that Rubicon and you've checked the ABG on the patient, you're trying to confirm the acidosis and you're completely off base in terms of electrolyte disturbance, then the patient's already in a bad place. So that, that is how I'm explaining these results. I see. Prove me wrong, world. I thought you were going to say, then you kill them. And I was going to say, what? Give <laughs> me sure. So it's just the only thing that makes sense. The curbsiders has gotten dark since my last appearance. It really has. <laughs> Got some alkalosis conspiracy theories going. <laughs> I've had a weird week, Joel. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a, it's big ABG is, is, is really influencing me. <laughs> Joel, can you remind – so just to recap for the audience – the, the three mechanisms, I, I have two of them that I think I can summarize, but I want you to repeat the third. So there was the, a, a person whose kidneys aren't working either because of acute kidney injury or uh, they have impaired excretion of bicarb essentially because the kidney yeah, is not what working. I, what are my That's favorite one. Example, one of my favorite examples of this, it was, there was a, a few case reports of people smoking crack cocaine that were oh, yeah. on dial, dialysis patients that smoke crack cocaine. And so I was not aware of this, but the most the by volume, the largest ingredients in crack cocaine is sodium bicarbonate. It's baking soda, and that uh, a dose of crack cocaine can have up to sixty millivolts of bicarb. And so, when dialysis patients smoke that, they actually ingest the bicarb by inhaling it, and that can cause a metabolic alkalosis. And they can't get rid of that bicarb because they don't have any renal function. Oh wow! Wow! So that's so that's the first first one kidney kidney is not working they can't get rid of the bicarbonate you said one of the other ones is volume deficiency or really chloride deficiency Specifically those two chloride kind of go deficiency. hand in hand yep. and then what was the third mechanism by which so the third mechanism is hypokalemia and the fourth mechanism is increased aldosterone activity and presumably given the fact that he is has volume depleted from his vomiting he probably has all three, chloride deficiency, hypogalemia, and increased aldosterone sec due to secondary hyperaldosteronism from volume deficiency. And then we'll talk about some, some things that cause all these that go along with some of these situations here. And it becomes not so surprising. Like so many times when you'll see that metabolic alkalosis, they also have low potassium. Like they walk together all the time. And the reason is if they didn't have that low potassium, you probably wouldn't be able to see the metabolic alkalosis because the body would autocorrect it very quickly. You know, unless they so this is sort of self-perpetuating is what I'm hearing. It, 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 they walk together for a reason. That's exactly right. They have to be together. So what's going to happen with this guy here? Are we, is for, for Mr. Al Kaline, he's, he's getting some normal saline. We, we throw some potassium chloride at him uh, because we want to replace both the potassium and the chloride. And what's the outcome with this patient? He's going to normalize his, his electrolytes overnight. And once you restore that chloride, once you re remove that volume deficiency, fix their hypokalemia, they're going to autocorrect pretty quickly and there shouldn't be any long-term uh, sequelae. And he'll get back to championship right field play. You said he was a right fielder, right, Beth? Yes. Okay. I think Beth ad-libbed that, by the way, Paul. I didn't see right fielder anywhere. In <laughs> <laughs> so if you go to if the the baseball park where the Detroit Tigers play is called Comerica Park and right field is called uh, K-Line's Corner. And I think that's nice. pretty cool. There's not, I, like I don't that. think there are many like geographical locations of stadiums named after players. Like he is, that is he is cool. truly beloved in Detroit. They're, they have Pesky's Pole. I'm sure there's more than that in, in, uh, in Fenway Park, but that's one of the ones I remember. One of the uh, foul poles. Hey, audience. Let me tell you about our sponsor today, the American College of Physicians. You know I've been a member for a very long time now because they have such great resources. As an internal medicine nerd, you know I love crushing some mix-up questions. Additionally, the Annals has some wonderful features. I love the ACP Journal Club, and of course, In the Clinic has some of the best review articles out there, so be sure to check those out. Plus, I've talked about this before, 
their online POCUS education and tutorials. Those are great to go through, and I regularly try to refresh some of my POCUS skills, and I kind of refer to them when I'm making resources for teaching POCUS education. The ACP has a wide array of free or deeply discounted resources for its now over 161,000 members. There's lots of ways for you to earn CME and mock credit. So what are you waiting for? Right now, U.S. post-training physicians can receive a 20% discount on their first-year membership dues. This is a special deal that's only available through December 31st. Visit acponline.org forward slash ACP20 and use the code ACP20. That's right, you'll receive a 20% membership discount if you join today at acponline.org forward slash ACP20 and use the code ACP20. So let's go on to case number two. Beth, can you take us through that one? Yes. Um, So this is featuring a patient named Mike Arbonet great name. Um, So unfortunately, (laughs) he has um, a bad cardiomyopathy. He had radiation therapy 25 years ago for Hodgkin's lymphoma, and his EF is about 30%. Um, And to add even more unfortunate circumstances, his Medicare Medigap coverage changed, and he hasn't been able to get his Secubitril Valsartan or his Torsamide refilled. So he's been out of medications for about 10 days, and he restarted one night before he ended up in the hospital um, with orthopnea, 20-pound weight gain, lower extremity edema to four plus pitting. And of course, uh, he's hypoxic in these conditions in the ER and he's placed on BiPAP. He started on a bumetanide drip three days ago and you're called in because his bicarb is 46. His ABG looks like this, pH 7.54, PCO 254, PO 290, bicarb 46, potassium 3.6. So um, can you walk us through what's the physiology of this really common scenario of diuretics inducing a metabolic alkalosis? Yeah, right. I think this consult comes up all the time. And there's something that either intensivists or cardiologists, as soon as that bicarb crosses 40, they call nephrology. I I never get called for a 38 or a 37, Mm. but it goes above 40 and they're like, Get nephrology in here. That's too high. So it, it's it's that's always the one that's problematic. Just a quick glance at the ABG. You know, remember you, know, you want to take a look at the three Henderson Hasselbach variables: the pH, the PCO two, and the bicarb. And you see all three of them that are going up: pH seven five four, PCO two up to fifty four, and the bicarb up to forty six. Everything moving in one direction. So you have a metabolic condition. So it's a metabolic alkalosis. And then if you wanted to see if the compensation was appropriate, right? So as that bicarb goes up, your respiration should slow, raising the PCO2. And you want to see how much the bicarb has gone up. So it's gone up from 24 to 46. So that's a delta of 22. You take two-thirds of that delta, which is about 14, and you add that to a normal PCO2 of 40, 14 plus 40 is 54, and that's exactly what our PCO2 is. So this is a well-compensated metabolic alkalosis with the appropriate respiratory compensation. That's the first thing you want to take a look at. It looks like they're operating the BiPAP appropriately, and so that, that, that all looks good. You want to, And then, you know, why does this guy have the metabolic alkalosis, right? And so it's a, this diuretic-induced metabolic alkalosis, like you said, is very common. And you say, well, what does he have? Well, he probably has intra-arterial volume depletion and chloride depletion. That's going to be diuretic-induced. His potassium is 3.6 here. So that's it's normal, but it's really at the lower end of normal. And so that's going to be the other thing. And then and that heart failure state is going to be a super hyperaldosterone type state. And that's also going to be kicking out additional hydrogen and reabsorbing bicarbonate. So all that is going to be perpetuating that. And that's a useful thing to think about. So you want to think, well, we got chloride deficiency from the diuretics. We got potassium deficiency from the diuretics. And the volume deficiency is kicked on the aldosterone. I call out those three different mechanisms because each one of those mechanisms is a point that we can intervene, right? We have a low potassium. Well, we can give potassium. We have loss of chloride. We can give chloride. And we have um, excess aldosterone and we can block that. So let's take them one by one. So the hypokalemia you can just give them potassium chloride. And the point that you want to do here is the target here is not a certain potassium, right? What we're trying to do here is correct the metabolic alkalosis. So you give the potassium until you start to see side effects from hyperkalemia. 
right? If you get the potassium up to four, that doesn't mean you stop. In fact, you keep going up on the dose until that potassium gets to five, five, two, and then you can stop, right? So you want to give as much potential chloride as possible. So, you know, start at 10 daily, move up to 20 daily, go up to 20 twice a day, go up to 40 twice a day, work your way up slowly because that's how the kidney is good at getting rid of potassium. If you give it time to adjust to increasing potassium loads, it gets better and better to adjusting to those potassium loads. And that can really help you. One of the things I always think about is if you get up to 40 milliequivalents of potassium chloride twice a day, that's 80 milliequivalents of potassium. And that's pretty much a kind of a standard, not even a standard, that's a pretty rich American diet. It's pretty good potassium load. If you're getting to 80 milliequivalents of potassium chloride a day, that's the kind of this equivalent amount of chloride as you'd find in a 500 cc bolus of normal saline. Oh, that's pretty good. This, and, and what you're saying is if we, so we have a patient in the hospital, this person, person has a lot of extra fluid. They're going to be here for a while. We still want to be able to get fluid off. So we're giving them potassium and, right. but so we really need thing, to be raising the chloride too. Yeah, right. Because right, we have a potassium deficiency and actually he, it's not clear he's got a potassium deficiency. He's got a low normal potassium, but he probably, he pro- definitely has a chloride deficiency from the days of diuretics, but not this Bumex drip. And if you go to cardiology and say, I want to put, I want to give him a couple of liters of normal saline. They're like, no way. The guy's still <laughs> on bypass. We can't do that. Right. right? You're going to get blocked completely. And and probably correctly so, right? Like the guy's got decompensated heart failure coming in to tell him that we need to give him normal saline. It's not going to be a popular choice. It's not going to be yeah. good for the patient. But the potassium is not going to have the same effect. It's going to move. It's going to disappear inside the cells, right? All that, yeah. all that fluid disappears in the cells. You're going to be fine with that. And so right. we're going to give them potassium and you want to just sneak up on it. You want to start low and every day go up on that potassium and you want to get to as, and slowly raise up that serum potassium until you get to a level, a level that's toxic. Okay, we'll stop here. And the serum chloride should come up with that too, right? Like I've seen a lot of and, these patients, they have a chloride in like the nineties, you know, it's, it's usually not at like 74, like our first patient who was vomiting, but often it'll be in the mid to mid nineties or something when normal's all the way up to what? 105. So we yeah. want to be able to, we'll see that bump up as well. Is it that, that and was the, kind and of the way question. you can, yeah. And the way you can follow this is you can just follow the urine pH, you know, get a daily urinalysis. You know, even though the bicarb is 46, you'll be, you'll be amazed. The urine pH will be five. They'll have no bicarb at all in the urine. And once you've broken them, once you get to the point where they're going to start lowering their bicarb, that urine pH will zip up to seven. Oh, and that's, wow. And that's I can't wait to try this out. Yeah. And so, and, and that's, that's going to be a, you'll get a faster response in the urine pH. Once that urine pH moves, you know, I'm doing the right thing. And that bicarb is going to start to come down. The next thing you can do is you can use acetazolamide. And acetazolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. And what you're going to do with that is you're going to cause a drug-induced proximal RTA or type 2 RTA, right? So the proximal tubule, we said, oh, it reabsorbs thousands and thousands of milliequivalents of bicarbonate. And unfortunately, in this circumstance, it's reabsorbing that bicarbonate when you don't want it to reabsorb that bicarbonate, right? That, that um, both the hypokalemia and the volume deficiency rev and stimulate the reabsorption of bicarbonate in the proximal tubule, and we can slow that down using acetazolamide. And there's a, there's a number of studies that have looked at this. You know, one, of, one of the big interests in this was in patients with uh, COPD. A lot of them will have uh, metabolic alkalosis from the associated diuretics that they get. And the concern is when you get that metabolic alkalosis, that can suppress your respiratory drive. Right, because when you have metabolic alkalosis, the way you right. compensate is you slow your respiration, you raise your CO two, and people were concerned. Well, hey, if I have this, if I have this metabolic alkalosis from uh, the diuretics that we're using, that may be stopping me from breathing fast enough to get off the vent. And so there was a trial called the Diablo trial that looked at giving acetazolamide uh, 500 milligrams twice a day to stimulate respiration. Now, the p-value was non-significant. Though it looked pretty impressive, they were they went from 160 plus hours in the control group to 130 hours in the intervention group on the acetazolamide. It didn't hit the p-value. It was barely, it was a non-significant trial. Um, and there wasn't much of a drop in the bicarb, which was different than a lot of other series. Most of the series usually find about a drop of six points when you use acetazolamide, you know, go ahead, use the, you know, let it rip, use 500 milligrams twice a day. Don't go with a small dose. And again, follow their urine pHs. And when that, when that drug starts to work, you'll see that urine pH go up. Can I ask a question, a follow-up question? So I see, I see this quite often and it seems to be 
especially patients who have chronic COPD with like a resp or chronic respiratory acidosis, and then they're they also have heart failure, and we're diuresing them. I I see these bicarbs shoot way up for whatever reason into the you know forty five, even all up to the fifty range. When we're giving the potassium chloride, or when we're giving the acetazolamide. Do we have to stop the diuretic when we get to that point of like 45? Because oftentimes these people still are total body overloaded and we're still thinking we want to diurese them. So what do we do with the diuretic while we're trying to give the potassium chloride or while we're doing the acetazolamide? So I'm not aware of any data that says what we do. And, and I'll just tell you what I see. And what mm -hmm. I see is people usually keep the, the foot on the gas and they keep going with the diuretic. Yeah. Right. Okay. I think there there may be a point when you're like you, you lose your will to move on. You're like I'm, that pH is too high. I'm I'm scared, yeah. and then you'll back off on the loop diuretic. But usually these therapies are given while they're still getting the loop diuretic. Okay. And can we and, just and, say and again, Diablo? Great name for a trial. Like stellar <laughs> stuff. Doesn't really matter. Positive, negative. Doesn't really make a difference. Finally, absolutely. someone's. I mean, strong right. work. Paul was yeah, like playing with his cat, and then he just perked right up as soon as I Joel mean, said <laughs> Diablo trial. That's like. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I just, I was hoping it was going to be a French, a Spanish trial. No, French. French. Yeah, French very French. <laughs> yes. Paul's a big trial head. He, he just, he memorized. <laughs> just can't get enough. <laughs> can't get enough of those trial names. As somebody who will be an intern soon, I mean, one thing I'm thinking about during this scenario is like, what could people, what could, you know, the intern managing this patient have done before tipping them into metabolic alkalosis? Like, are there any like strategies to avoiding this, like before you have to get to the point of adding these therapies on? Well, I mean, the, you don't need to wait to 40 to start these therapies, okay. right? So <laughs> if your goal, no, honestly, if your goal is to get them in negative balance, adding acetazolamide, that's just adding another diuretic. That may, that's something that makes sense. And starting that early is probably a good idea, right? That can really assist in your diuresis. Right. And then the other diuretic that we're going to talk about is spironolactone. Right. And this one also makes a lot of sense. And I think is a more better as a preventative therapy than as a reactionary therapy. Right. If it can help prevent that rise of bicarb above 40, you can, you can intercept and prevent the nephrology consult by starting them on spironolactone. The thing to remember is you're really, you're looking for a diuretic effect here. And the 25 milligrams that we're used to ordering for heart failure is not going to cut it for getting much of a diuretic effect with, with um, spironolactone, right? And this was, you know, if, if you read the, uh, the RALS trial, they make a big point of this. They're like, yeah, this dose is so small. We don't think that it's a diuretic effect that's causing the advantage in heart failure. We really think that this is, you know, a neurohormonal issue, which I'm sure it is. And it was so, and again, and same thing with the hypertension, like we get control of the hypertension with these low doses of, of spironolactone usually also. And it's kind of, it's been so successful with those two things we've forgotten that if you want to get a good diuretic effect, you, you need to use a lot more. And it's also not the fastest acting. You're not going to get, it's not like a, a furosemide where you give it and you see a few hours later, the Foley bag begins to fill. You know, understand that you need to give it for a couple of days to see peak effect there. So you may, you may be using 100 milligrams a day. The one caution I would use is probably be careful about pairing this with the high dose potassium chloride strategy. These may not go, <laughs> these may not go great together, right? You, may, you could probably do them a little bit, but just be careful with that. And, and one of the other pitfalls here, especially with the potassium, is oftentimes these patients are either on a vent or they've got an NG tube and the nurses don't like giving potassium chloride because they got to crush it. And there's a dissolvable form called um, potassium acetate. And that acetate gets converted to bicarbonate in the liver. And so you're trying to correct this metabolic alkalosis and now you're giving potassium plus essentially more alkali. And so you need to be, you need to be specific and say, hey, potassium chloride comes as a liquid. If you've got an NG tube, you can just put the liquid down. You don't need to worry about dissolving it or using the, the tablet and crushing it. So be specific. No potassium chloride is what you want. You don't want... K-FOS, you don't want K-acetate. That's a good pearl. A follow-up question about the use of acetazolamide or the, the higher dose spironolactone. Once the person is euvolemic and we're de-escalating, switching them to whatever's going to be their chronic regimen, usually the acetazolamide we would not use outside the hospital. That's just like for a couple days. Um, usually we back off to a maintenance dose of potassium chloride and then spironolactone, same thing. You'd come back down to like the 25. A absolutely. And um, acetazolamide is an incredibly intolerable drug. It makes 
anything that's carbonated tastes awful. It's intolerable. Um, the uh, so uh, beer, champagne, Coca Cola, right. pop. Just, and this guy's you, name is Mike Garbinet. I mean, he loves. Yeah. He's a big soda head. So he, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, that was super helpful because I I see that a ton when I'm working as a hospitalist. That is a very common occurrence for patients with heart failure. I'm sure that's going to be very helpful to a lot of listeners. But we have some more stuff that's going to be very helpful to a lot of listeners and another great name. Yes. Beth, can you uh, tell us tell us about her? This is um, Fracture Franny. Um, she's a 78-year-old woman with a history of multiple fractures attributed to osteoporosis, and she's here at Cashlack Memorial with confusion. Um, initial labs show creatinine of 2.8, BUN 48, bicarb 36, calcium 18. ABG shows a pH of 7.57, bicarb of 43, PCO2 of 47, a PO2 of 87, Creatinine was 0.7 six months ago, so she's really up from baseline. Clearly, the most remarkable lab here is that calcium of 18, right? Your your eyes can't you can't take your eyes off of that, and then and then associated with that, she's got the um and she got the confusion. You're like, oh, I got I've got the diagnosis, right? You got the hypercalcemia that's causing the altered mental status. You're going to sew this all up real easily. Um, the other and then. You know, so when you want to work up hypercalcemia, right, the first thing that you want to do is you want to take a look at that PTH, right? Is this going to be primary hyperparathyroidism or one of the extra parathyroid causes? And her PTH was undetectable. And so when you think about those undetectable causes, uh, PTHRP is another one. And this one, uh, this one was also undetectable. <laughs> And then, Very um, helpful when it comes back six weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> the, the primary this, care doctor thanks you in follow up. Yeah. It was a send out test. It was a send out test. It's always a send out. It never it never comes back at any time reason at any reasonable time. And then uh, and then the one twenty five OH vitamin D. So like your sarcoid or your TB or your lymphoma that can drive that one alpha hydroxylase, and that was also low. So kind of like kind of it ticked the box of like well all the ones that we typically think about as being extra PTH are all negative. And I also don't see the calcium usually quite that high. Like uh, a calcium of 18 is, that's that's pretty remarkable. And usually you see these people with primary hyperpara, 10 and a half, 11 and a half. And then for malignancy, I see it in the 12 to 14 range, but 18 is like astronomical. Yeah. That, that's, what, that's what it takes to get a case report nowadays. Got to be a high calcium. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, this is this is definitely a remarkably high uh, calcium, um, and that probably I did, I did pull this from a case report, so that there is some probably publication bias in terms of how dramatic the the calcium was. You can but tell I the, take USMLEs. Is this a milk alkali syndrome? It, it it is. It is a milk alkali <laughs> syndrome. That's that's one of the that's the last of those uh, low P not the last of them, but you know, in terms of the common ones, it's one of the last low PTH driving that hypercalcemia is a milk alkali syndrome. She's not taking Tums. She's not drinking milk. It's 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 a milk alkali syndrome without the milk, right? And they you know, there's um, it's kind of the 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 modern form of milk alkali syndrome is. Uh, is from calcium carbonate, which many women take to either treat or prevent osteoporosis. And if the dose is recommended, not a problem. But, you know, a lot of times people think two pills are good, four pills is better, and eight is even better than that, right? <laughs> and uh, you, they talk about, you know, once you get above four grams of calcium a day, which is way beyond what anybody's recommending, you can start to see uh, this milk alkali syndrome. So good call, Beth. And, and uh, what what do you think comes first for this this lady? I mean, like the creatinine's two point eight. Is it the because we talked about this? We did a we did a hypercalcemia episode, and it seemed like the setup was person's taking mega doses calcium vitamin D when the kidneys are healthy, they're able to get rid of it, but then suddenly that person becomes dehydrated, develops an AKI, and now all of a sudden, what happens? The they can no longer handle it. You think that's what happened to this person, or you think that the calcium is what the amount she was taking hurt the kidneys? No, I, I, I mean, 
So anytime you read the, the, the review articles of milk alkali syndrome, they always say, we're not exactly certain of the pathophysiology, <laughs> right? They always, I see. And, and I think you're, you know, you're hitting on you know, exactly what is the thing that tips them over. We do know that as your bicarbonate goes up, that's going to decrease calcium excretion. And as you decrease that calcium excretion, that'll increase the calcium. And once you get a little bit of hypercalcemia, that'll decrease the GFR. And then you're kind of off to the races. Once you have that decreased GFR, you're unable to clear the bicarb and you're unable to clear the calcium. And both of those are kind of uh, are positive reinforcing. You have a, a, a feed forward mechanism, positive loop where you increase bicarb causes more increased bicarb and increased calcium causes more increased calcium. And that's, that's how you get to the, the milk alkali syndrome. Is that helpful or is that just confusing? That was helpful, I think. Okay. I'm curious okay, if there's any finding that may come back before the PTH, like if, would a UA or any type of um, finding there help you so like urinary for, for pH? Me, for-, for me, you know, you know, for a guy who looks at acute kidney injury all day long, you just, you, you recognize, you get the kind of the sense of the syndrome of what acute kidney injury looks like. When you have acute kidney injury, they get metabolic acidosis and they get low calcium. And so when you see acute kidney injury and you see hypercalcemia and metabolic alkalosis, you're like, no, 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 this, this doesn't, this is not your run of the mill acute kidney injury. This one looks really different. And the first thing you want to say is like, am I looking at the right labs? Is this the right person? And once you confirm that you got the right person, these are the right labs, you really kind of zero in on this milk alkali syndrome. That to me is going to be the pattern. And then you start, then you get all the confirmatory stuff. And I think it's especially important to go through and tick all the boxes in a case where the calcium is this high, because you, you just, you don't want to miss a malignancy. So you know, you know, don't miss the occult multiple myeloma or the, the breast cancer diagnosis or prostate cancer, you know, make sure you're, you're taking care of all those things, you know, and then once you've kind of recognized it, the treatment ends up being pretty textbook, right? The first thing they always tell you to do in um, uh, hypercalcemia is to give them IV fluids, right? Start, start getting that urine flow up, give them IV fluids. If you can run it 200 an hour, if they'll be able to tolerate that, run it at 200 an hour. I might be a little bit nervous in fractural franty running it that fast, but you're going <laughs> to run it. You're going to run the, you're going to run the normal saline as fast as you can. And once again, you know, you look at that alkali, don't give them balanced solutions, right? You don't want to give lactate rigors that has calcium in it to the person who has hypercalcemia. Let's not do that. Let's just give them the normal saline. Let's keep it simple. And the, in my experience, when I've seen these, that calcium just melts away. These patients get better very, very quickly. You've broken the cycle by giving them that, that chloride replacement. As soon as you break that cycle, they're able to clear their, that calcium and that alkali on their own. Yeah. And Franny, she has a trip to Italy coming up with her friend. She really wants to make that. So I, I hope we can pull her out of this. Yeah. The, the, one other, the one other kind of tidbit is if you read classic milk alkali syndrome, part of the syndrome is an elevated phosphorus. And that's because milk is loaded with phosphorus. But modern milk alkali syndrome from this calcium carbonate, there's no milk involved, so there's no phosphorus load. Plus, calcium carbonate is actually a pretty good phosphate binder. And so they end up presenting with low phosphorus. So it's kind of the, the kind of, you can almost identify them from the labs of what the source of their calcium was, whether it was calcium carbonate or just dairy milk. So Franny, Franny will live to see another day. We've diagnosed her. Beth has diagnosed her. Uh, and we have one more case that I, we wanted to take take people through. Let's move on with, uh, with what are we calling this guy? Hyper Al? Hyper Al. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that <laughs> is Hyper it. Al is a 27-year-old with ADHD. Beth, tell us, tell us more about this case. Um, so he is presenting in your office. Um, he recently failed his commercial driving license test because his blood pressure was 180 over 110. But I'm also curious as to why his blood pressure was taken at his driver's license test. Oh, uh, commercial was- driver's license test is that uh, uh, they check your blood pressure. Oh, interesting. This is, this is yeah, one this of those. for CDL. Yeah, this is a different oh, animal. CDL. Yeah. yeah, you can't. Okay. Di- if, if you have diabetes and, and you require insulin, you can't. You can't be you can't you get your cdl taken away there's all sorts of rules with it wow but, okay but Beth, so- this is these 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 are good clues like when you're trying to get a history of hypertension i always ask about high school sports because they always get a blood pressure check then did you try to join the army get a blood pressure check then and um and this is especially for men uh, it's army high school college sports and commercial driver's license are the ones that i usually pick up do you guys have any other ones that you use 
Sometimes people check in like the grocery store or the or the pharmacy, probably less so now that we're in a pandemic and people are all <laughs> turned into germ- germaphobes. But before that, people were some of my patients would do that. The dentists, by the way, invariably while we're on the yes. topic. And it's and unfortunately, you know, when one. you find out you're about to get your teeth drilled and to check a blood pressure and then it's high, I don't even know what to do with that information. But I, I get a lot of <laughs> patients who are hypertensive at the dentist's office for reasons that are understandable and then also probably actually hypertension. Good point. Yeah, that's another good one, Paul. I didn't. I, that is that is very true. I get a lot of calls from frantic dentists, uh, or <laughs> you know, asking if it's okay to drill this person's teeth because the blood sure. pressure was one sixty over ninety. They took an aspirin four weeks ago, and is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> that, that's anyway. actually the name of my ska band. It's Frantic Dentists. <laughs> <laughs> no one steal that audience. <laughs> so highbrow. Um, Hypertension is actually not a new diagnosis for him. Um, He's heard this before. He was diagnosed with it five years ago, did have a trial of hydrochlorothiazide and was profoundly weak on it. Um, So they've been maintaining on amlodipine and lisinopril at max doses. Um, In the office today, blood pressure is 156 over 96. Their heart rate's 82. Their drug screen is actually positive for THC and benzos, um, negative family history of juvenile hypertension. So and, and and before we move further on the on the drugs, um, we said this patient had ADHD. You're definitely going to want to talk about the ADHD drugs because those can cause that's a big cause of juvenile hypertension or early early onset hypertension. So make sure uh, they're not using any um, uh, stimulants or any other uh, amphetamine like drugs that might be causing hypertension. So um, our patient doesn't have any family history of juvenile hypertension. You run some basic labs, they come back with hypokalemia, there's a metabolic alkalosis, you're starting to get concerned that this is a primary hyperaldosteronism. Um, so you do get an aldosterone level and it's two, normal range would be between seven and 30. And you get a renin as well, and that's low, but not suppressed. So how do we, how do we interpret this with this low aldosterone? Right. And so we were already talking about that this patient sounds like they are primary hyperaldo. It's a full setup for primary hyperaldo. You've got the hypertension. They drop the, the potassium with the, with the diuretics. Like you get full credit for thinking, oh, I know what this is. This is primary hyperaldo. And that's going to go along with the rest of the talk on metabolic alkalosis. And we throw you a curveball here and say, actually, the aldo is suppressed. And there are a few unusual and incredibly rare diseases in which you get this pattern where it looks like primary hyperaldo, but it's not. And this one is an autosomal recessive form, hence the lack of a family history. And this one is called a syndrome of apparent mineral corticoid excess, which is loss of function of the 11 beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzyme that exists in the principal cells. And so one of the unique things about the mineral corticoid receptors that are normally activated by aldosterone is they are also activated by cortisol, that the cortisol that circulates in your body absolutely will fit right into the mineral corticoid receptor. And cortisol circulates in your body at about a thousand times the concentration of aldosterone. In order for aldosterone to be an effective signal any cell that has mineral corticoid receptor has to deactivate cortisol. And the enzyme that deactivates cortisol is that 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. And if you don't have a functional 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase, the cortisol that circulates in your body will activate the mineral corticoid receptor, drive the hypertension, drive the hypokalemia. It'll look just like primary hyperaldo, except for when you measure the aldo, the aldo will be suppressed. This is the same enzyme that's deactivated by licorice. So you, there was an, uh, an interesting case in the New England Journal of Medicine, what was it, a couple of years ago, about a guy who had a heart attack from eating so much licorice, and that resulted in hypokalemia and hypertension. Natural licorice also will deactivate this enzyme. Paul, black licorice, that's your favorite candy, right? From childhood? Yeah, I don't I don't mind it. I, I think far less gross than red licorice. I know it's a controversial take, but I, I stand by it. Uh, I was just trying to make fun of the fact that you're older than me. <laughs> I, sick bird, dude. 
<laughs> it's going to take me a while to recover from that one. Um, I'll be staring off in the middle distance if anyone needs me. Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the last thing that we didn't talk about earlier, because the cases that we gave pretty much were uh, broadcasting what was causing the metabolic alkalosis from the setup. They weren't big diagnostic dilemmas. But you will come across patients where you see the metabolic alkalosis and you're not sure what to do. And in that workup, one of the very first things you want to do is you want to look at the urinary chloride. And that's going to neatly divide. If the urine chloride is less than 20, these are patients that are volume deficient or will be responsive to chloride infusion. So that'll be all your diuretics, your vomiting, your milk alkali syndrome, all of those patients are going to respond beautifully to chloride and they'll have a low urine chloride. The diuretics are a little weird. If the diuretic is still acting, that may push up the urine chloride until the diuretic wears off. But once that diuretic is kind of cleared out of their system, their urine chloride will go very, very low. And this is the same way we normally use the urinary sodium to kind of assess what the kidney's perception of volume is but the urine sodium doesn't work in metabolic alkalosis because that bicarb that's in the urine just grabs onto sodium and pulls it along with it so they can get an artificially elevated urinary sodium. So you just can't trust your phena or your urinary sodium to kind of advertise what the volume status is. You have to go with the urine chloride and that'll be much more reliable. And that'll help you remember also that these patients are chloride responsive, that it's the chloride that's important. And if they have a primary stimulus of aldosterone driving the maintenance of uh, metabolic alkalosis. This is going to be your Cushing syndrome, your primary hyperaldo, your syndrome of apparent mineral corticoid excess. Yeah, all of those will have high urinary chloride or urinary chloride above 20. And so that's that. if you're kind of confused about the diagnosis and you're trying to work up metabolic alkalosis, that's what you want to do. And I think that's what we've got today. Four great cases, four great names, and uh, and a good hang. Thank you, Joel. Yeah, this was that's a good why hang. You're, that's why you're our chief of nephrology. And did you have a couple take-home points that you wanted to leave the audience with? Uh, I mean, you almost you just gave us a great one about the urine chloride there, but any other things, any other big take-home points from this episode? Right. So one of the main ones is that Oftentimes, these patients are going to be volume deficient. You want to reach for normal saline and not the balanced solutions that you're used to giving for resuscitation. Don't make that mistake. Uh, secondly, make sure you fix that potassium. Don't let those patients live with that low potassium. And then we talked about the urine chloride. And then lastly, uh, these patients, they have uh, increased hospital mortality. Don't sleep on these patients. Be aware of them. Make sure you're covering all the little electrolyte abnormalities, all the things that go along with it, that low calcium that may be happening, that low potassium, certainly uh, take care of these patients and don't, and don't uh, let them fall on the back of your list. Awesome. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And if you do that, you'll be signed up for our twice-monthly new Curbsiders Digest, brilliantly named, which will recap the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, so we want you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and send us your feedback to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And we should be sure to thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank the incredible Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.